Whoa, dude, I can't believe Dusty got you a spaceship for your birthday. Must have cost a fortune. Well, the latest issue of Winnethine had been doing pretty well over at winnethine.com, where you can get your hands on the hottest street photography thing out there. Issue 3 is available for pre-order at the low price of £6 at witnessneen.com. Yeah, I know. Who are you pitching to? Oh, oh, oh I was just saying, you know. But, um, but yeah, Dusty actually got a deal through uh, SpaceX. Apparently after Trump got COVID, uncertainty into the survival caused their stock to tank with uh, shareholders panicking, thinking that their contract with Space Force would be trashed. So they temporarily started a fire sale, and Dusty managed to get this for six pounds. You don't say. Conveniently sized two-person space pod, just enough legroom to accommodate a six-foot-six-inch person, while also featuring an onboard state-of-the-art podcast recording studio, all for the price of Witness Zine Issue 3. We are going to be the first podcast to record in space! Um, actually, you'll find that uh, NASA has a podcast, and they sometimes talk to the astronauts in space. <sighs> Let's just get in. Now, how, how do you start this thing? There's a manual in the glove box. There is a glove box in a spaceship? Sure. It's cold in space. Gotta have a place to store your gloves. But we're in a climate-controlled space pod. Have you been to space? No. Cold. Mm, whatever, dude. Uh, oh, here it is. Here it is. Uh, uh, this. Uh, um, wait. This manual was produced at Ikea. <laughs> We're never going to get it started. Oh, God. Hmm. I wonder what this button done. Huh. It says Space Mountain. Press it. Actually in space. <laughs> hey, look, Shaq was right. The Earth really is flat. <laughs> hey, this manual says the ship is armed with a BDP 9000. Oh, cool. Must be the podcast recording software. It says to press this button to activate the BDP 9000. <laughs> Whoa, is. Is that Brian De Palma? Yeah. How did you put yourself into this computer? I am a science geek. I still have all my computers, and I've been following the uh, computer revolution since uh, the mid-70s. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Well, Brian, we are going to make the first podcast in space, so seeing you run the ship, can you hit record? Are you crazy? What? Shooting in space is horrible. Well, it's just an audio podcast. We aren't really shooting anything. 
This is not like movies. What is this? We're talking about Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Stop it! Stop it! I can't hear that! Well, Brian, what's wrong? Uh, What should we talk about? Uh, Mission Mission to Mars. Oh, uh, well, Brian, I, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, that That's a great movie and all, but uh, it's not shown at the Prince Charles Cinema this coming week, so we don't really have a reason to talk about it right now. Do you always tell the truth even when you lie? What? Can, can we just record already? I don't think so. Spaceship manual controls deactivated. Autopilot on. New course destination. The sun. Wait, what? Brian? Turn back on the manual controls. I don't think so. Brian, take us home. No way. Listen, Brian, Brian, we're sorry. Just, just take us home, please. I have to pee. <laughs> Brian. Brian, please take us home now. Brian. Brian? Dude, what the? Well, I guess we're heading in the, into the sun. Um, oh, look. Brian must have hit record before he left. Cool. I don't know. Well, we're already here. Shall we just do the episode? But, but why? What else are we going to do? Okay. Hey, guys. Whoa. Nasif? What are you doing here, dude? Uh, I just thought I'd tag along for this. But where were you? In the boot. The boot? This thing has a boot? It's cold in space. Dude, what does that even mean? Welcome to the Pod Charles Cinecast! Presented by the Prince Charles Cinema. This is your host, Jonathan Foster, and oh boy, we are heading into space. We are aiming directly towards the sun, as you heard at the top of the episode. I don't know, listeners out there, if this will even make it to you, but it's okay. We're going to persevere because what else are we going to do? Uh, I am here today with our star boy. Phil, how's it going, Phil? How are you doing today, Starboy? Starboy, all right. I don't appreciate the weekend reference, but um, I'm all right. How how's it going? See, I told you it's cold up here. Yeah, it's pretty cold. Uh, I was not expecting this, um, and I'm glad that there were an extra pair of gloves in the glove box. Uh, yeah. Didn't know spaceships had glove boxes, but here we are. <laughs> Nasif's brought his gloves, and we're ready. <laughs> Fingerless. So Fingerless gloves. Just, just the palm, the one. Well, everyone out there listening, we have a special guest with us here today. Uh, I may as well just go ahead and introduce him properly. Uh, it is Nasif Khan. Hey, Nasif, how's it going? Hey, John, Nathan. 
How are you doing, man? Are you doing all right? I'm good, man. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Excited to be on, uh, on the airwaves on your show. Yeah. Well, this is our first uh, guest in a long time. I don't remember the last guest we had on the podcast because it's so hard to like, I don't know. It's, keep up. it's been so lonely in space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Nassif works at the Prince Charles Cinema as a front of house staff member. And also you are a stage manager, aren't you, Nassif? Uh, correct. Correct. How long have you been at the Prince Charles Cinema? Um, well, it must be over five years now, I'm thinking. Yeah. Did I interview you? No, but you did uh, You did my induction. You, yeah. you were there in, in the Prince Charles Cinema uniform. I think that's the only time I've ever seen you <laughs> in a uniform. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, you, I guess you were still front of house back then. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was uh, dipping my toes in front of house a little bit yeah. as well as uh, doing, yeah, training and all that sort of stuff. I remember when you came on, you came on at the same time as Dennis. And yeah. it was uh, Fright Fest. And I remember it was like <laughs> your guys' first day was like on a Sunday afternoon on Fright Fest or a Saturday afternoon. I can't remember. And I was charged oh, with like managing, but it was like, I think my first managing shift. And I was also supposed to train you and Dennis, but there was no way I was going to train you because we were in the middle of one of our biggest festivals all year long. <laughs> and I was just so, I was like, I'm so sorry, guys. Oh, I'm so sorry, but uh, yeah, you're just gonna have to go sit in the screen because there's nothing else I can really do right now. There's no time. I'm gonna have to. Uh, sorry, we we'll train you later. And you guys were like, "Dude, don't worry about it. It's like we get to watch stupid horror films like all day. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Such a hard job. <laughs> yeah, it's a great introduction. Yeah. Well, not so far. It's been. A long, long, long six plus, almost seven months, I guess, uh, since the cinema has shut down. Uh, and we are actually on the verge of reopening this week. The The episode comes out on a Monday. We'll open up on the Tuesday. So tomorrow, basically, listeners. Um, how has your lockdown experience been and what have you been up to? Oh, geez. Yeah, it's been a mixture. Of, it's been a roller coaster, I guess. No, I've been uh, been doing a lot of indoor gardening, shaving my head, nice. uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know all, all that between you know, crying and existential weeping. <laughs> all that, yeah, I don't know. How, how have your guys' lockdown been? I, I know it's been been documented i guess yeah <laughs> yeah week by week you can chart our mental health yeah. i was very yeah. i was like rooting for you phil to get off that sofa <laughs> <laughs> we have a listener here and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, yeah i did eventually i wasn't happy i fucking wasn't happy about it but i got up <laughs> i fucking had to look at us now phil we're in fucking space and uh you're just looking around. Yeah, we made it. We made it. We're, we've done it. Like, I don't know if we're coming back from this. It's funny that the Star Wars and Galaxy Quest episode didn't count, but this is the time <laughs> where we get to face. Oh, man. Nah. Uh, but yeah. Well, not just, 
I'm glad you are here today. You're like one of my favorite people at the cinema because you are just really fun and funny. We always get on. Oh, but anyway, like how did you find the Prince Charles Cinema and like what's some of your favorite things about the place? Oh, my God. Uh, the loaded question there, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do I find I, I think it's like probably the best job I've had up, up to now, you know. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of wonderful people. It's a great job. Um, some of my favorite moments, I don't know, it's like a lot, I guess. Uh, I, I guess it's just the people, like, yeah. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I find it like, the place where we work as well, the surrounding area is very interesting. There's always, there's always, there's always something happening. Yeah. There's, <laughs> I mean, there's a very lively area, you know, for better or worse. Yeah. For better <laughs> or worse, you're going to have crazy stories to tell like, on the work. way to work, on the way back from work. Yeah. Like how long ago did you first go to the cinema or find the cinema? I don't remember my first encounter because I used to go to the cinema. Well, not to the cinema. I used to go to Trocadero a mm. lot as a as a kid when that was an arcade. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I used to. Me and my friends used to go there every weekend with with the pocket money, um, <laughs> and like during the week, and we'd spend it all on the arcades, and we'd walk past the Prince Charles Cinema all the time, and. Just remember thinking that oh that's that's like a like an adult cinema not an adult cinema as in like a porn cinema but like yeah, what oh, was an adult cinema yeah no, no. can I say that no it was never a pornographic cinema <laughs> no no, no. Uh-huh. I mean I mean in the sense that it's like a place where grown ups go to you know yeah. like it just sent, mm. just seemed like this cool edgy kind of place <laughs> yeah. and uh, uh-huh. you know there we were it's like. 12, 13-year-olds just, like, walking around on our DSs playing <laughs> Pokemon or whatever, <laughs> just on the way to the arcade. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't actually remember what my first film was, though. It's a good long history, though. That's cool. Yeah. Guys, we are in week two of October on the podcast. Last week, we introduced uh, a little thing where we were talking about Black History Month in the UK. Because October is Black History Month. Last week we announced that each week of this month we'll be giving out our picks of important pieces of black cinema to us. My pick last week was 42, about Jackie Robinson starring the late great Chadwick Boseman. And Phil's was Ava DuVernay's moving documentary, 13th. Phil, what do you have for us today? Nasif, I don't know if you got a pick, but we'll allow you to throw a pick if you do have one. But uh, I know you weren't really prepared for that because you just jumped into the, the boot of the spaceship. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I could, uh, I could throw out a thing. Cool. Yeah. Well, Phil, what do you have for us? I'm going for a weird one, and it's not a weird one, but like I just, I happen to be thinking a lot about this movie this past week, and I could say anything from this director. It's one of my favorite directors around right now. Ryan Coogler. So mm-hmm. I could either you could go Black Panther, you could go Fruitvale Station, but I I mean watched all of those films, especially Fruitvale. But um I wanted to point out Creed. Creed. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh Creed I I love I'm I love Creed. I think I'm a fan of the Rocky movies and I remember this 
idea being put out there. It's like, oh, they're going to spin off the series but about Apollo Creed's son. And I was like, that's a great idea. What a wonderful way to like, like tell new stories in that old familiar world. Yeah. And people were skeptical and then it came out and it was actually really surprising. And like, that's the appeal of it. And I think that film makes such a great case for why you should have new diverse voices in film because you're taking like, a like, so it's Michael B. Jordan um, as Adonis Creed, and he's on the same sort of path as Sylvester Stallone was in like the 70s Rockies. The same arc, the same trajectory, but the, his situation is wholly unique and wholly um, uh, distinct to his character as a, mm-hmm. uh, as a, a black character. Like the, he grows up in the foster homes and where he trained and the other side of town and the people he's growing up with, like he's the underdog for an extra host of different, an extra amount of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, like he still gets the shot of the title and he's still trying to prove himself, but now it's about legacy and his name and his worth as a person finding space within an established universe cinematically as well as um like societally so i just went off a bit there but creed is just an excellent boxing movie as well if you're into that sort of thing and it's also just a great sports movie um it's a great just love story it's a great story about legacy and fatherhood and um finding your place in the world um it's it's great it's um it's one of my favorites um and it's better than you think if you're not into like Rocky and shit, you don't need to know about any of that stuff, but it's, it's really good. So that's my pick this week. Yeah. I mean, Creed's a good film though. I mean, like I, I agree with you saying it's better than you think. And uh, even I, I feel like the, all, like most of the Rocky films are sort of like that. I mean, they do get a bit silly, but I mean, by the time it gets to Rocky four, it's just completely hilariously fun. So there's no reason why you shouldn't mm-hmm. find anything enjoyable about it. It's really fun. <laughs> But like the first Rocky movie, it's like you go into it if you think, oh, it's just some dumb boxing movie. It's not. It's like one of the it won best picture. It's one of the greatest films of all time. It's Never really made, well yeah. made. But at the same time, Creed is a good example of how to do a reboot correctly, where you build on the lore that you have, but then you create new lore and you can just put like a new character using the same sort of like storyline. But it's just like you build it and you just create something completely new and fresh and it doesn't need to be like um you know exactly the same story you know and that's sort of the problem with like some reboots but mostly with remakes but yeah i like creed a lot i think that's a good shout what is your shout what is your pick this week john jonathan (laughs) (laughs) my pick this week is uh john singleton's 1991 Coming of age drama, Boys in the Hood, uh, starring Cuba Gooden Jr. You got Lawrence Fishburne, Ice Cube, Morris Chestnut, (laughs) Nia Long. I Mm. mean, dope boy. Just a stupidly good film. Revolves around the story of a young man growing up uh, in tough conditions in South Central Los Angeles. And it touches on like so many like important themes like poverty, drug abuse, gang violence, black on black crime. Uh, children growing up without fathers, systemic racism within the police and the military, and just gentrification. 
and like improv impoverished areas. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've always loved this film. There's a lot of films that are similar, like, you know, of similar ilk and vein that were co- coming out around the same time. Uh, because this film actually was like, I think just a bit of, it was a popular, it made some money. So of course, like there was, you know, a need to try to capitalize on that market. And, uh, I, I just think it's a really, really well-made film. Like there's some really good acting in it. Like ice cube sort of just really surprises you, even if you kind of like take out sort of the parodies that you know <laughs> people do particularly like, you know, don't be a menace in South central. But I mean, yeah, I almost said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but like, I, I just really like the film. I think it's a really important film. And it's like, I can't believe John Singleton was only like 24 years old when he directed it. It's insane. Uh, so if you've not seen that film, I would definitely recommend it. John Singleton's great. Like he he was such a good filmmaker. Uh, his films are so wild, like Baby Boy is so silly. It's really fun. And then Too Fast, Too Furious. Come on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the best fast and furious patreon.com forward slash PCC podcast all those uh, five dollars more a month you can get those bonus episodes that whole fast and furious series over there hey hey uh, you know John Singleton directed too fast too furious but anyway no uh, I, I really like this film a lot it's it's got like those stand by me vibes as well so yeah I really like it um, anyway Nasib did you have a pick while we were talking well, great film I saw last year. We, we screened it at the cinema, actually, uh, called Black Joy, 1970-something. Oh, yeah, that was a part of that, like, f- little mini film festival that came to the cinema for, like, a couple of days. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought that was a great film um, about an immigrant um, sort of being dropped in, in, in London, in Brixton, and uh, sort of trying to survive the streets of Brixton and comes across a host of unsavory characters, con artists. Um, and, and yeah, it's just, it's just a very interesting film. And also if you want to see, you know, what a snapshot of Brixton in the seventies, that's a good film to, to watch. I've also been watching a documentary series uh, called End of Empire. Mm. Um, it was a 1980s uh, documentary series made by ITV, and it just sort of analyzes or it, it takes a look at um, uh, the end of the, the British Empire, basically. It's not specifically about black history, but it, I mean, it's, I mean, it includes all the countries, all the states that were a part of the British Empire. And yeah. In a way, to like, you know, decolonize the curriculum through film. I think that's a very interesting documentary series to, to have a look at. Nice. I think it's important to understand the, uh, Britain's role, you know, in, in all of this. I mean, <laughs> this is pretty fucked up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's good that you have that those two uh, picks because, like I said last week, uh, growing up in America, a lot of my picks these, over this month are probably mm-hmm. definitely all going to be like American centric. But that's like what I know and grew up with and stuff. So, um, but yeah, it's good to have a, a British uh, point of view, um, a, a take from someone who was brought up here, grew up here in London as well. So, Phil and Nas, yeah. It's 
finally <laughs> here. Like I said earlier, the day after this episode goes live, the doors to the Prince Charles Cinema will reopen for the first time since the 17th of March. What are you guys' thoughts about getting back? I mean, I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm kind of, it's a mix of excitement and uh, just uncertainty. Yeah. Where things will go. <laughs> I've come, I've come full circle on the whole thing. Uh, I'm not working the first day, I think I'm working the weekend. Um, but it's like, you know, before lockdown, I was like, I just i'm working too much i don't want to go to work anymore and then it's like oh shit i can't go to work i can't do anything i'm stuck in the house yeah i would really like to get back to work and now i'm getting back to work and i don't want to go back to work <laughs> so it's just i was like oh i've you know i've actually been enjoying the last few weeks of lockdown i kind of want to <laughs> keep going um yeah. i finally i feel like i finally felt found my groove and my routine and my like balance between working and uh, like uh, relaxing, and it's just, and now yeah. I have to go out into a world. I don't feel particularly safe, not from the cinema, because we're being, from everything we've heard, they're trying their best to protect at least us, our side of the kiosk, our side of the counter. I feel like we're okay. It, was, it doesn't sound like things are coming down anytime soon out there. So, mixed, like nothing. Yeah, that's the biggest concern really right now is obviously like it's uh, kind of an uncertain time around. But, you know, at the cinema for the listeners out there who are venturing back, I know some of you are. I've seen people saying they're excited to be coming back and like that's great. And we're like Phil said, we're trying to do as best as we can at the cinema to like make it safe for all of our staff and obviously safe for all the customers coming into the doors. Um, Mm -hmm. We've got like screens up. We're going to have social distancing, hand sanitizer stations throughout. There's going to be social distance seating. Um, But and then also in the screens, we have these like new air purifying systems that are hospital grades. They've like been used. Very reassuring. Yeah. Like they've been used in like Scandinavia, I think Sweden or something like that. And uh, they are. Yeah. Supposed to be cleaning out the air, like replacing the air every like I think eight times an hour or something like that. So it's it's pretty crazy. And uh, hopefully that will help the air in the cinema as well. So we're trying as hard as we can, but obviously like the concern is like getting to the cinema. Like we can't really, (laughs) you know, put air purifiers, uh, you know, in every train carriage or or (laughs) whatever. But, but, you know, it's uh, we are trying our best. So when you get back, hopefully you feel safe when you're at least at the Prince Charles Cinema. And, you know, we can't wait to welcome everyone back. Um, you know, all you guys listening out there, we just want to say thanks for this, uh, being a part of this with us. Um, this is sort of like our last proper episode where the doors are shut. And from here on out, the episodes are going to be a while we're open. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, we'll see how this goes on. But uh, we really couldn't have gotten through, I guess, all of this without all you guys keep coming back and listening to these episodes. Or I don't know, like we are going crazy anyway. I mean, God, did you hear that <laughs> intro? But hey, <laughs> let's get back into something we haven't done in a long time. What are we showing when we welcome you back to the cinema? Let's get into what's in store this week at the Prince Charles Cinema. From tomorrow, 
Tuesday, the 13th of October, we open our doors to a handful of screenings that, you know, are going to be part of the BFI London Film Festival. So tickets have actually mostly sold out for nearly every screening playing in our program. Uh, but there is a handful of tickets remaining for Bassam Tariq's Mogul Mowgli, starring Riz Ahmed on Tuesday, as well as one or two tickets left for this documentary called Time that I talked about a couple of weeks back on Thursday, the 15th of October. So go to our website, PrinceCharlesCinema.com, if you want to come on the first couple of days. We'll be there with London Film Festival, uh, brand new films. First time, a lot of people will be able to see them, and that's cool. So also, on Thursday, the 15th of October, we snuck in another screening of Aaron Sorkin's The uh, Trial of Chicago 7. We talked about Social Network last week on the podcast, and I mentioned that uh, Trial of Chicago 7 were, was going to be shown at the cinema, so that's great. That film looks really fun. Uh, hopefully, people come out to check it out. Uh, hopefully, it's good. We'll see. I don't know, Sorkin. I mean, I think it should be. So now I'm moving into our official reopening program from Friday, the 16th of October. That's more like it. There we go. From Friday. That's how I normally do it. (laughs) From Friday, expect some amazing PCC favorites and even a couple of new films to help us get you back into the swing of things. All week long, we'll have screenings of John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, because it's Halloween time. We got to have something spooky ooky for you. Sophia Coppola's (laughs) Lost in Translation and her brand new film On the Rocks starring Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. A couple of names we've heard in the last couple of weeks. A handful of screenings of Bill and Ted's Excellent Avenger. Dude. Yes, dude. And we have, like I said, the Trial of Chicago 7 showing all week, as well as screenings of Pulp Fiction, The Matrix, My Neighbor Totoro, and a brand new horror film called Host. Dotted throughout the week. Not to mention, on Saturday night, 17th of October, we'll see the return of Jordan Peele's Get Out! We're talking about Black History Month. That's a sick movie. Uh, I love that film. I love what Jordan Peele does. He's bringing, you know, horror back to a really nice classic vibe. Uh, So, yeah, go check it out. So, you can see there's a lot on offer at the cinema this coming week. But tickets are getting low, so we recommend booking ahead. As we can't guarantee there will be any tickets available on the day. And, of course, one of the biggest things kicking off this week from Friday. And screening throughout the month of October from glorious, unrestored 70 millimeter is our film of discussion this week. Phil, we are in space. We're floating around. Nasif joined us for this. What film are we talking about? Oh, me? Me talk? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's David Bowie's The Space Oddity. Oh shit! I put the wrong oh shit. <laughs> the other one. Uh, Two thousand one, a, a space podcast odyssey. Woo! Woo! Welcome to voice print identification. When you see the red light go on, would you please state in the following order: your destination, your nationality, and your full name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Thank you. Quite frankly, we have had some very reliable intelligence reports that quite a serious epidemic has broken out into Clavis. No, there have been some conflicting views held by some of you regarding the need for complete security. Something apparently of an unknown origin. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. This is in fact what has happened. I've already discussed this. 
We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides, but unfortunately we didn't find anything else. It hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Four million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert, except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery 1 left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was the HAL-9000 computer. Everything is going extremely well. One gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. Well, hell, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. But, Dave, I can't put my finger on it, but I said something strange about it. Just a moment. Just a moment. Do you know what happened? I'm sorry, Dave. I don't have enough information. Made radio contact with him yet. The radio is still there. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Millions of years ago, someone or something placed a monolith on Earth, simultaneously nudging along the evolution of a tribe of prehistoric hominids. Fast forward millions of years into the future, human civilization, unbeknownst to them, is about to take the next step in evolution. As a similar monolith is discovered underneath the lunar surface and emitting a radio transmission directed towards Jupiter, Jupiter! Afterwards... (laughs) A team of pilots and scientists are sent off to discover its origins with help from the intelligent supercomputer, not to be confused with BD, uh, B, B, P, what, BDP, BDP, uh, 9, it's how 9000 resulting in a thrilling and cosmic exploration through space. It's Stanley Kubrick's 1968 epic sci-fi space opera. Often regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. Come on, guys. It's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hot takes out the gate. Phil, where are we coming at? Uh, boring as shit. <laughs> yeah, man. I would totally Here we go. Agree. Hot takes. So long. <laughs> what is going yeah. on? What the fuck? Monkey <laughs> and shit? Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, yes, that is true, but it's fucking great. Yeah. 2001 is amazing. I, 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 oh fucking hell you should watch 2001 if you haven't seen it like especially at the cinema like holy shit like i still don't understand how they made fucking half of that um um, they freaked me out to watch it it genuinely like unnerved me um yeah okay hot take that was my hot take (laughs) (laughs) well nasif a couple of weeks ago if the listeners out there are subscribed to our email uh mailing list at princecharlescinema.com. We've got a little mailing list there. Send out emails almost every day. I make them. So if you like me, you can read some of the stuff that I have to write for these things. But then also, <laughs> Nasif sent in a nice little staff pick uh, to our pal Sophia, who works on the emails with me. And it was really good. And it was about 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
Uh, you don't have to read this whole thing out, but kind of like not so f- uh, your hot takes out the gate about 2001 A Space Odyssey and kind of why you wanted to talk about it. And it's like the pick this week, basically. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, like Bill said, I think it's a very boring film. And, um, <laughs> and the reason why I want to talk about it is I just need to get out how much I dislike this film. <laughs> yeah it's a time to do it (laughs) no no um yeah it's a brilliant film Mm. very like groundbreaking i wanted to talk about it because i've just been reading through the 2001 series um just during through lockdown nice and uh i just sort of gained a, a a renewed sort of appreciation for um for the themes explored in, in the film and the book and the effort that went into making it timeless classic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you guys. It is hella boring. No, <laughs> uh, no, no. Uh, it can be boring at times. This is an interesting film. It is, like I said, one of the greatest films ever made. It is like literally someone putting a clinic on how to make a film especially a sci-fi film is ridiculous. Um, uh, like it's, I don't know. It's one of these weird things where, uh, the film, like I said, in the synopsis that I was reading out, I mean, it's literally about the evolution of man. And, um, if, if you believe that, cause listen, listeners out there, if you're listening to this podcast, if you made it through that first, like 20 minutes of whatever nonsense was at the beginning, and you're actually listening to us talk about 2001 a Space Odyssey and you want to hear us talk about it. I apologize. I mean, this probably is, is not going to be good because you <laughs> might have your hopes set really high. Uh, I I think we all really like the film. It's just this is a really difficult one to talk about. I think I've kind of like uh, I've dodged it for the last year and a half that we've had the podcast running because we show it all the time in the cinema, but it's just one of these films where people take it very seriously and they like, uh, they like Mm. their information to be correct. But at the same time, some people might not find their information to be correct. Uh, so it's a conflicting information about people's interpretations about the film. So we'll get into that like later. Um, but Mm. I just kind of think, you know, it's sort of about the evolution of human, if you believe that, I mean, uh, people, some people might not think it's about that at all. They might think it's a fucking war propaganda thing. Who, who knows? But anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going into it uh, is the way I sort of see it. But I do see it as a bit of evolution. And I feel like the film itself is like an evolution in itself. Every time you watch it, you're going to probably like understand what's going on a little bit more. See something else that you've never seen before. Uh, so every time it's almost like a new experience. It's uh, it takes watch after watch after watch to sort of evolve into understanding <laughs> what's going on into uh, a fan of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, I watched it the other day and it was uh, morning and I've never watched it that early in the morning. I saw it for the first time when I was like 14 or 15 years old and I was just like mind blown, sort of like, what the fuck? And then as I got older, it was sort of like, you know, love, hate. Because sometimes you're just like, well, I don't know. I don't know. And then, like, recently I've watched it a couple of times, saw it at the big screen. We did the understored 70 millimeter, like I saw it last year at some point, And I was just like, Jesus Christ, this film's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. 
And then I watched it, like I said, in the morning the other day, and I'm just like, how did I just, just I don't know, stroll through this film early in the morning and just absolutely <laughs> enjoy it? And uh, I think it was probably one of my favorite times I've watched it. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, the whole film. film is about, yeah, ne- it's the evolution of man, but it's about rebirth. And yeah, like, so like the way he comes out at the end, mm-hmm. it's a gr- like the great way to start the day. It's a great yeah. analogy for like the cinema reopening mm-hmm. if it stays open. Um, but <laughs> I mean, I know, I know what you mean because I didn't like the movie the first time I saw it, but I saw it too young. I was a teenager. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. going to appreciate something like that. And I, I saw it on a little TV, not paying attention to it really. Mm-hmm. It was only f- being forced to usher an unrestored 70 <laughs> screening at, the, at work because we do them weekly. And I just happened to always work that those late shift for a while. So I've ushered it several times. But that yeah. was what converted me, just being forced to sit and listen, look at it. And and then finally being like, oh, I get it. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, I, I, I see what the big deal is. And now I I enjoy what I don't mind watching it every time. That sounds like, that sounds fun watching it in the morning. Yeah. Like Awake and Bake <laughs> and then watching Tatum sound amazing. Yeah, I think it would have been better, even better if I was baked, but we'll get into that as well. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there's a lot to unpack in this episode. I will go ahead and say that this is a Mamma Jamma. I mean, it's fucking 2001. It has to be, but I'm going to try to get through it as quick as I can. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how we end up on the other end. And you guys can tell me at the end. Uh, not not you two. I don't give a shit about what you two have to say, Phil and <laughs> But um, the listeners, you can let us know if this is, uh, yeah, cool. You get it. Right. Nice. Whatever. I don't Podcast. know. There's nice. a lot going on in this film and the development of it. And it began back in 1964. It was after completing Dr. Strangelove that Kubrick became sort of fascinated with the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And he was keen on making, quote, the proverbial good science fiction movie. He was heavily influenced at the time by Japanese tokusatsu films, which are basically Japanese live-action dramas with the heavy use of special effects. So you can think things like your kaiju films like Gojira or Godzilla, whatever. But particularly, Kubrick was interested in films like 1956's Warning from Space, which is about one-eyed starfish-like aliens (laughs) coming to Earth to warn of imminent collision with a fiery star. Hey guys, listen, we're like, uh, we need some of those because we're about to run into a fiery star. If you didn't remember that we're heading towards the sun right now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're dying (laughs) slowly. Um, Yeah, I've not seen this film. Uh, I did peep a bit of it because it is on YouTube and it looks really silly. (laughs) It's it's ridiculous. ridiculous. (laughs) I didn't have any subtitles, so I like wasn't really able to properly enjoy it because I didn't really know what was going on. But um, I did see the starfish like creatures and they were really funny. Uh, But yeah, he was he wasn't necessarily as interested in like because a lot of these films would have clumsy models and there'd be poor dialogue and all that sort of stuff. So but he was really interested in the way the films were shot and also they would have some pretty cool, crazy sets. So that was something that he was really keen on. And he was also highly impressed with science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke's novel Childhood's End about a superior race of alien beings who assist mankind in eliminating their old selves. Kubrick, he started coming up with this idea to make this film. He wanted it to explore the reasons for believing in existence of intelligent extraterrestrial life and what it would mean if we discovered it. 
So an acquaintance of his at Columbia Pictures advised Kubrick to reach out to Clark, who was living in Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka, modern day, and cabled the film proposal to Clark. Kubrick was keen, but he was convinced that Clark was like a recluse, a nut who lives in a tree, is what he said. Um, And when Clark responded, he stated that he was frightfully interested in working with that Infant Terrible. Uh, (laughs) And also (laughs) questioned why Kubrick thought he was a recluse. Uh, They ended up meeting in New York in 1964 to begin working on the project. And Kubrick told Clark that he wanted to make a film about man's relationship to the universe. And as Clark put it, he was determined to create a work of art which would arouse the emotions of wonder, awe, and if appropriate, terror. So Kubrick was given (laughs) six short stories by Clark uh, to use as source material for the film. And it was the 1948 story, The Sentinel, that uh, was chosen, which was about the discovery of an alien object buried under the moon's surface millions of years ago. The object served as basically a tripwire that once humans uh, were technologically advanced enough to discover, it would send signals out into space and alert, uh, alert extraterrestrial life of our existence. So that's how they kind of paired up. They got this story, The Sentinel. Nasif, you said you've been reading some of Arthur C. Clarke's later stuff, uh, the sequel stories that he has written, like 2010 and all that. Have yeah. Have you read The Sentinel? I have read The Sentinel, yeah. I, I read it in, um, there's a good book called The Lost Worlds of 2001, which kind of goes yeah. through the making of um, 2001, uh, the book and the film, and it includes The Sentinel in it. And um, yeah, very interesting. I mean, it's just literally, well, it's not literally, it's, it's basically, I guess, the inspiration for the the first, sorry, the second bit of the film where they, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where they find the thing. Yeah, when they find the monolith, monolith. On, the, on the moon, yeah. uh, except in the Sentinel, it's a pyramid. And, uh, oh shit! Yeah, Illuminati, yeah. <laughs> bro. Yo, look at that money. <laughs> yeah, we're getting into the conspiracy already. Uh, <laughs> well, afterwards, the pair would read more books on science and anthropology, watching more science fiction films, and brainstorming ideas, and then set out to develop a novel and a script simultaneously. They created the plot for the film by integrating several different short story plots written by Clark. For instance, the film's opening sequence, like uh, Nasa said, the Sentinel part sort of covers the second part of the film. This film is set up in sort of four stories. That's why it's sort of like I said, an opera. It's got four acts, basically. Um, And the first act is the Dawn of Man film's opening uh, which was inspired by Clark's story Encounter in the Dawn. There's got n- there's numerous names for this story, but that's the main name that kind of goes around. And this, along with other new segments requested by Kubrick for the film, is what resulted in becoming the script for 2001: A Space Odyssey. Privately, the project was being referred by the two at the time as how the solar system was won, which was a reference <laughs> to the epic film How the West Was Won. And eventually, in 1965, Kubrick issued a press release announcing that the title was Journey Beyond the Stars, with other titles being considered as Universe, Tunnel to the Stars, and Planetfall. I love Planetfall. Like, that sounds like 
yeah. a film that's destined to be like at the bottom of a bargain bin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not like the like last successful sequel to Skyfall. <laughs> <laughs> James Bond in space. Oh. Again. <laughs> It, well, Arthur C. Clarke said that was uh, entirely Stanley Kubrick's idea. He came up with the name 2001 A Space Odyssey about 11 months after beginning the project with the intention to set the film apart from the monsters and sex type of sci-fi films popular <laughs> at the time. And he particularly used Homer's The Odyssey as a source of inspiration. And that's, I think, sort of how they came up with like doing it in sort of the acts and stuff as well. Um, and during all this, I should note... Kubrick was really interested in keeping up with the space race and the lunar missions as the United States was getting really close to landing on the, uh, the first person on the moon. Or did they? Or did they? Or did they? Oh, <laughs> oh did Kubrick shit. actually do it? We've talked about this already. I know you guys are going to want us to hear about all this conspiracy theories, but guys, I mean, come on, go back, listen to the Shining episode. We covered Kubrick filming the moon landings in the Shining episode. You can go back and listen to that, um, but we might talk about it later. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be a really long episode. And I'm making I it longer. Yeah. I don't remember if we <laughs> came to a conclusion on that episode though yeah uh, i mean you know we've done this several times we did it on ice white shot as well (laughs) (laughs) in a panic shortly before nasa's mariner 4 spacecraft passed mars on 1965 uh kubrick attempted to take out and this is fucking silly uh an insurance policy With Lloyds of London. Lloyds of London, yeah. As he worried that the discovery of alien life was imminent, which (laughs) would ruin the plot that he and Clark had been working on. Arthur C. (laughs) Clark, which I think is in the book you you referenced, uh, Nasif, said that how the underwriters managed to compute the premium, I can't imagine. But the figure they quoted was slightly astronomical and the project was dropped. Stanley decided to take his chances with the universe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> come at me needless to say the mariner 4 when it passed mars it basically only sent crater like images that looked similar to the moon and there was no life found and uh that we know of and uh yeah they just found the script to 2001 floating <laughs> yeah. through the <laughs> yeah, they found the script to mission to mars <laughs> yeah oh shit Sorry, we should shut up. I, I know uh, he BDP. hit record on us, and I don't know if uh, he's listening to us. I mean, we'll find out. Um, oh, there's an ending somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Kubrick and uh, Clark apparently had a pretty interesting relationship, though, with at one point Clark nervously coming out as you know gay because he was a gay man to Kubrick as if it was a big weight that he needed to lift, and Kubrick was sort of like, yeah, I know. And it was sort of like, (laughs) (laughs) all right. (laughs) And then there was this, uh, like Kubrick was continually, you know, requesting new story ideas, but he was refusing to allow the novel to be published first, even though that was originally (laughs) what he had promised to Clark. So Clark was just trying to get Kubrick to allow him to use the new ideas that he was giving to Kubrick for the script to adapt into short stories. But like his payment kept being delayed because the sell of the novel was being delayed and deferred so he was just like i think getting really stressed out and i think at times they may have come to blows you know it it sounded like a really interesting relationship uh i know there was some weird stuff about how like arthur c clark was going to have the book 
you know, uh, is credited to written by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. And then Kubrick was going to have the script as written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. It was just like this weird sort of thing. Whoever was in control of their medium. Um, I don't know now so if you have anything to add to that, like from reading the books. Because Kubrick just took so long to make it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. like, dude, I know we're making a masterpiece, but like, I'm broke. Yeah, this literally took like four years to to come into fruition, so it's pretty crazy. But it, it seems like there was some original versions of the film that Kubrick actually attempted to portray extraterrestrial life on screen as uh, humanoid-like aliens, which uh, Brian De Palma, I mean, I know you might be listening out there, but that might have been the problem with Mission to Mars because those aliens looked really fucking weird and you should have taken a page out of... Uh, <laughs> Kubrick's book by scrapping those ideas. Um, but it was after, and also you, you too, George Lucas, what's wrong with you guys? That Like, what was going on in those interdimensional beings in uh, Indiana Jones 4? But um, <laughs> it was after he spoke to, uh, he and Clark spoke to astronomer uh, and writer Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan proposed that the film would simply suggest extraterrestrial superintelligence stating that alien life forms we're unlikely to bear any resemblance to humans. I mean, I don't know, dude. I've heard about these, uh, you know, Nordic fucking alien <laughs> creatures that look just like, you know, sexy Scandinavian blonde haired blue eyed Adonises. And um, that sounds human to me. So I don't know. I don't know where you guys stand on uh, alien uh, culture and, uh, you know, races and all that. <laughs> That's a different well, one. Yeah, with, with any version, that's a different one. I mean, you could say that Kubrick took the easy way out by just having and you know, alien being like uh, essentially just beings made of pure energy, so you don't see them. <laughs> yeah. They're just essentially invisible, but they're there. Yeah, something. He's looking at fucking something at the end. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just like constant port- like hearing stuff. I think any portrayal. Um, will just inherently be anthropocentric, yeah. and I think that's what. Exactly. Like um, warning from you mentioned warning from space. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's what the, the one thing it was sort of like praised for was that the aliens in there didn't didn't, didn't look, look like humans. Uh, humans at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like starfish. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can get you can get really lost in. Uh, Alien races. Uh, I don't know if this is the right podcast for that, but maybe there's another little thing coming called breadcrumbs where we can talk about stuff. Like that. <laughs> uh, and another breadcrumb it dropped. <laughs> boom. Uh, when the project received funding in 1965, though, Kubrick and Clark were still unsure of what would happen to Bowman after the Stargate sequence, which we'll talk about Stargate sequence in a little bit. But originally, all the astronauts on the Discovery, the ship, the Discovery were to survive the journey, but they decided to make Bowman the only sole survivor and regress to infancy. Um, early drafts included prologues, voiceover narration, which Kubrick was like pretty, it was pretty common in some of his earlier films to have that more emphasis on the prevailing cold war balance of terror. And there was a different and more explicit, explicitly explained breakdown of how 9,000 other changes were in, uh, instead of the infinite, infamous uh, black monolith depicted in the film, like Nasif said, the original story of the Sentinel was more of a uh, pyramid. Uh, in the early script, 
it was supposed to be this sort of colorful and transparent tetrahedron, which is really crazy shaped. And this proved to be really difficult to film when they were making the movie. So the production assistant suggested a monolith. I heard some stories about Kubrick, like there was, there was quite a few things that were suggested to Kubrick. And at first he was just sort of like, fuck no. But then he <laughs> quickly realized it was the only way to get out of some of these really tough situations that he was finding himself while filming. And then he learned to say, do not shoot down, you know, a good idea. <laughs> so he like, <laughs> he learned as he was going, but, um, the crew was also supposed to venture to Saturn, not Jupiter, but they struggled with the special effects team were struggling with making a convincing looking Saturn, like basically the rings. They weren't able to convincingly make it look real. And that's why they decided to go to Jupiter. And then the finale with the star child, our little star boy, Phil out there in space <coughs> floating around. You're supposed to see the star child actually destroy and explode uh, nuclear weapons that were being carried by satellites orbiting the earth. And this was discarded due to his similarity to his previous film, Dr. Strangelove, the ending with the atomic bomb. Um, so a lot of these ideas though, Nasif was shaking his head a little bit because they did end up in the book. So, a lot of these things, if you read the book, is it is slightly different. Kubrick even said as himself, further changes that Kubrick made were making the film, you know, more nonverbal. He said that, of course, like it's easy, you know, to communicate uh, verbally in a book because you're you're just reading. But he was just like he cho- chose to visually rather than narratively show the story. And that's why the first 20 minutes of the film and the last 20 minutes of the film contained pretty much no dialogue, no dialogue. And what dialogue was in the film was almost banal. And that kind of made Hal 9000 seem like he had more emotions than any of the humans. So, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you guys think of that. It is kind of funny. I was like watching it back and I was just like thinking about how funny it was uh, when... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Frank Poole is sitting there l- listening to his parents, like wish him a happy birthday. And he's just sort of like no emotion. <laughs> yeah. Like, and he just, and he goes back to tanning, whatever the fuck he's doing. Yeah. What is he doing? It doesn't look like he's sort of tanning. He's got these crazy goggles on, but it doesn't necessarily look like there's more than maybe just like a slight red light over top of him. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's how disconnected he is, man. Yeah. He don't give a fuck. He'd been in space for ages. Yeah. I think Hal turned on him because uh, he was tired of him giving him stupid. Like, I mean, they're treating Hal like a slave. Like, Hal, bring me up. Hal, listen back. <laughs> bring down. me down. Yeah. Hal, turn the volume up. Hal, 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 Hal. And Hal's just like, listen, guys, I have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get into the cast in this film. So, we're introduced first to obviously the uh, man apes, the the hominids, as I mentioned at the beginning. Hominid, hominid, hominid. It's your first act, uh, and particularly we have Dan Richer as Moonwatcher, the man ape. Um, he's the basically the leader of the tribe of man apes, and he uh, is the one who discovers the bone as a weapon after he touches the monolith, and they all evolve basically and then they go beat the shit out of the other tribe and take their river back and uh also you know it's all sorts of fun stuff you know they learn how they can eat meat and stuff you know and they 
hadn't conquered fire yet, but you know, I just want to say that eventually I think they were going to after they invented the will and start walking upright. Um, but I got told by a man once at Speaker's Corner that uh, we were not evolved from apes. So who knows? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> who knows? That guy, you know, seemed pretty with it. He was wearing several hats. <laughs> this this film this film could uh, fit into a creationist worldview. Yeah, yeah, it could, man. Like, <laughs> what is at the end? It is God. We'll get to the end, maybe. Um, <laughs> what is God, really? <laughs> Brian De Palma. Uh, <laughs> Richard though Dan Richard he was a professional mime and he was hired after he basically acted out like an ape like they were holding auditions trying to figure out what like how they were going to use these sort of ape like creatures uh, walking about and Dan Richard just comes in and I think he might have had like a a black sort of leotard sort of thing on or whatever um, and just sort of went at it and Kubrick loved it just doing all of his sort of movements and stuff. So he was employed and then he basically brought in a miming troupe of, of, of a dozen or more young dancers. And he was basically training them all and choreographing them based on their behavior. The uh, realistic costumes that they were wearing were designed by Stuart Freeborn. They're pretty crazy, but I will say I love the unrestored cut because I, the, the, the cut I was watching the other morning, sorry, was, um, was a more modern, uh, like digitally altered sort of cut. And I remember when I saw the unrestored cut, the opening sequence is before they, they must have touched up a few things because some of those uh, costumes looked a little bit dodgy. I felt like you could see the bottom of people's like <laughs> shoes and stuff. And also there was like a really funny moment when the leopard jumps down. Um, and <laughs> it's like, there's like a, you could see part of the set like where it wasn't properly framed right like the camera was <laughs> to the up. edge of the set yeah i felt like i swear i saw that let me know if you go watch uh the um unrestored cut but i mean i think that's the genius part of the unrestored cut that's just like a craft movie. table over there like <laughs> coffee and shit i swear like, why didn't man, we do that i could be wrong but maybe it's just because i saw it on the big ass screen at the cinema you know like it was nuts but um anyway apparently this rick richter guy or uh was a, an addict during filming and he managed to achieve the status of legal attic in uh england he injected a doctor's prescribed speedball combination of heroin and cocaine up to seven oh, times a day and if that shit. wasn't doing the trick and he needed another kick he took some meth <laughs> this is the guy who's in the ape costume yeah the main one no wonder they're doing all those weird back rolls and <laughs> he's fucking tweaking, bro. Yeah, yeah exactly. And apparently, he was accused of pushing drugs, so he like confessed the whole thing to Kubrick. I love these people just conf- confessing like their sins to Kubrick. Straight and up. Kubrick's just sort yeah. of like, okay. <laughs> Kubrick actually apparently was a bit intrigued by it all, and he just kind of asked questions of how it all like worked and what he did and. <laughs> How do you take that many speedballs in a day? It must, like, I guess because it's medically prescribed, but, like, a speedball is, like, designed to kill you. It's, like, literally (laughs) cocaine and heroin. It's, like, one speeds up your heart, one slows it down. Yeah. It's it's just going to stop. How do you do seven of that and (laughs) roll around like an ape? And meth. Like, he was, that was real for him. And meth, like, when it just wasn't enough. That shit was real for him. Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. When... When people are like, oh, the 60s, that's what I'm going to think of. Yeah. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I said apparently leading to that because a lot of times when I'm doing this stuff, I feel like it's half-assed internet research and I'm just sort of like, <laughs> you know, like, is yeah, this real? I don't know, though. but I found that on a couple of sources, but I did like listen to him talking in some sort of interview thing and he was like, he seemed fine. He's like older now. He's an old guy and he seems fine, but and he was pretty proud of his work and he did a great job. That whole sequence is amazing. And he beautifully put it that they are basically the missing link. And I was like, that's how I found that interview because I was just like, I, it sort of triggered something in me in this rewatching this time around that they are literally, this is the missing link. It's uh, Kubrick solved it, um, that it is the monolith that comes that makes them evolve into modern man. There you go. Um, or is it? Because, I mean, who knows what 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey is about? I don't know. Uh, next, we're introduced to William Sylvester as Dr. Haywood Floyd. Uh, basically, this guy is your second act. He is your boy who is like any other politician, basically, coming in. I mean, it's this is your political uh, act here where basically he's a doctor who is sent to the lunar space station and he's uh, sort of going to go lie because they know that there's some extraterrestrial activity going on, but they're covering it up. We were talking about this before we recorded it, and it's kind of interesting because I forgot that it was uh, masked as a pandemic was going on at this lunar space station where the monolith was discovered. Or, or, or a pandemic. Right? A pandemic. That, that was- <laughs> <laughs> it's a pandemic. So it's a, yeah. Hey, who knew that uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey would be very topical right now uh, with pandemics going on? <laughs> the thing is, they, that that's one thing that I was completely clueless on. I mean, like, what is going on there? Their communication's gone, but I feel like it's never, that's never really addressed. And um, mm-hmm. he goes, obviously, he goes to see this monolith, and the monolith is there, and uh, the it's a lot about alignment in this film. Like there's a lot of alignment going on, like uh, particularly like when the apes discover the monolith and the, you could see where it's almost like an eclipse or something like that's going on. It's mm-hmm. because Taking the planets the are aligned and that's evolution mm-hmm. happening there. And when he, they see the monolith, it's another alignment shot. There's the sun coming up and it hits the monolith and that sort of sparks mm-hmm. that radio wave that, that sends them basically to Jupiter because that's where the radio signal is going. But um, it's funny that they don't really describe more of what's going on at this place and why they're <laughs> saying that it's a pandemic. But who knows? Who knows? Politics, baby. <laughs> it's like watching the news now. Yeah. It's like know. pandemic. Yeah, okay. That's a, it's <laughs> happening. But, but did you hear about this? <laughs> yeah. Has, has this just been... You know, is QAnon sort of right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. As as all this being oh, constructed, shit. don't get me except, started. Except oh. Trump has uh, he's he's made contact. he's evolved to the next stage of like a super being, super human person, immune to COVID. Yeah, I might be immune. I don't know. God damn it. So Dr. Haywood Floyd, though, it's very interesting. His daughter in the film that he speaks to via video chat, which is fucking amazing because Kubrick is... Uh, he, Yo, that's what we're doing. Yeah, he invented... And no, we're in space. Whoa, we're, guys, we gotta we're in the on. future. We're in space. Uh, <laughs> Kubrick invented a lot of cool things in this film, basically. He invented Skype. He invented uh, iPads. There's a lot going on with the technology here that's absolutely amazing. Uh, 
and it's crazy that this film was before they actually landed on the moon. Um, <laughs> or did they? Um, or did they because of this film? Oh, uh, sorry. Um, but yeah, there's a, another interesting thing that he's talking to this girl, his daughter. Her name is Vivian Kubrick. Oh my God, it's Stanley Kubrick's daughter. That little teeny girl who wanted a bush baby. And apparently in an early version of the film that was screened, uh, Haywood Floyd actually buys his daughter a bush baby that she asked for. I can't believe they'd cut that part out. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know? Com- confirmed not a piece yeah. of shit. <laughs> apparently he bought it via a video service as well, which is hilarious because it's just like internet shopping right there. Love it. Yeah. Did, did he pay with a fucking thumbprint? And <laughs> God. Fucking hell. Stuck his chest up against the screen, against the camera. <laughs> Billy. Uh, uh, what else did they invent in this film? There was a very interesting food. Uh, Breeze-dried food and things. Oh my God, is it time for a snack time? Snack time. Snack time. Quarantine. Quarantine. It's snack time. Lockdown. Yay. All right. I heard that uh, Phil. I forgot. Do you have a snack, Phil? Did you forget? Oh, no, you I snack. remembered. Oh, okay. I remembered. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm I... not the one who forgets and then cuts out the segment. Yeah. Oh, I didn't cut it out this past week. It's good. It's in there. So. Okay. Um, okay, good. Yes, I have a snack. Nas, if you go first, you take first honors. What did you ah, bring today to yeah. get you through oh, the rest you. of this I'm, I'm manic I'm episode that's going to take me well, 10 hours to edit? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I got some Snyder's oh, pretzels. My God. We are Damn, back boy. at the cinema. You know, my God, this is a rebirth classic. for sure. I've been missing work and... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to be allowed to really snack on shit anymore. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> not safe anymore to snack. Um, but yeah, I've got this. That's a good one. That's yeah, normally have a Club Mate Cola to wash it down. Oh, with. yeah. Dude, that is, oh, shit. That, is that's, that was my jam that. at the cinema, man. You get the, uh, I, 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 the jalapeno is okay, but I, I quite like the cheese ones. And then you get a Club Mate Cola. Ooh. 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 Yeah, yeah. Ooh. yeah. All right, well. Uh, you could pop that bad boy open and take a take a bite and give us a rating if you want. You got the ASMR going on. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Oh, oh he's going for the. Oh wow, in. he fucking <laughs> went for it. <laughs> You're gonna regret that. This is the one time it I watched this a video podcast. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's spicy and crunchy. And very more. <laughs> well, on a scale of one out of five monoliths, how you give what you give the Snyder's jalapeno boys? Oh man, I'm I'm gonna give it a, a six because it's transcendental. You know, it, it just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, shit. The, the, the spiciness just kind of um, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm on. And some hallucinogenic pretzels. <laughs> well, I didn't even realize we had Dave Meltzer on this podcast this week. So here we go, <laughs> breaking the scales. Yeah. All right, 
Uh, Phil. That's funny. What do you have this week? Um, I just so happened, um, you know, I got a nice, uh, like, a care package from uh, Dusty's mom for my birthday, and it's, like, full of Ooh, snacks and stuff. And in there was a classic cinema treat, cinema reopening. It's popcorn. Ooh, oh, wow. nice. But it's the... It's Joe and Seth um, salted caramel gourmet popcorn, which I think we sold for a bit. Oh, yeah. um, I'm not yeah. sure if we sold this flavor, but I don't remember trying them, so I'm going to open them up and see see what they're like. If I can. Fancy popcorn. They're really sticky. Oh, okay. Cinema snacks. Yeah. <laughs> and okay, wait, I just need to cut this. <laughs> oh my god, you need scissors? Yeah. That's that's not very <laughs> Imagine doing imagine doing this in the screen. Yeah. You'd be so yeah. pissed if someone like whipped out a pair of scissors to open up fucking popcorn. <laughs> I you know, okay. at our cinema I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> They're okay. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a salty I'm a salt boy I'm salt a salt boy, boy salt, and this is very salt gang salt gang and so this is very sweet it's heavy on the sweet it's literally caramel yeah. um, so if you I don't want to give it a bad review because if you like that sort of thing this is great and this is very mm-hmm. sweet but this would be hard for me to like munch on it would be quite thickening after a while mm. so I'll go down the middle then two and a half out of five Add point if you like that flavor anyway. I've got this week something insanely crazy, and I think I found it in the space pod. It's lucky that we're in a space pod because it's come with snacks, and uh, it's very <coughs> apropos of what we're doing today. I have uh, two packages of astronaut food. Um, oh, wow. This Is it tang? <laughs> astronaut bananas. Oh my god! Wow. And then I have that legit? astronaut uh, Neapolitan ice cream sandwich. <laughs> Ooh, no so gonna, fucking way! We're gonna test each one of these. They are freeze freeze dried food, and it's apparently uh, official foods, just like they eat they ate on the early Mercury missions. Here we go. Oh man, the bananas smell bad. Oof. <laughs> it's banana chips, basically. So, I mean, come on. You could have gotten that. Which are without. usually good. Uh, this. You know what? Not bad. Kind of <laughs> tastes like something will be in a special K cereal. <laughs> I, get I mean, that if you're in space. Two out of two and a half out of three. Uh, sorry, two and a half out of five monoliths. It's not amazing, but it's not horrible either. All right. This is what I was keen on, though. The ice cream sandwich. I had one of these as a kid, astronaut ice cream. And as we were prepping for this episode, I was like, oh, I am very excited about trying one of these stupid things again. It actually looks like an ice cream sandwich and it's falling apart. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to try the strawberry section because it is uh, Neapolitan and I don't want to eat it all right now. But um, let's try it. Oh, God. Oh, wow. That's crunchy. 
fell apart. Um, that was real. That's that's. <laughs> it tastes like everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> I don't even know what to. I kind of like this movie. Yeah, I don't know what to even grade that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it just came apart, right? It's just in pieces. Yeah, just wow. yeah. It's that, like, that's that's really helpful. Practical in zero gravity. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh shit! Crummy space, guy, crummy. <laughs> and I had to eat this. I think like I'll be glad I that I had sustenance, <laughs> but at the same time, I'll be like. What is this? Or maybe <laughs> it is the pandemic and uh, I've lost my taste buds. <laughs> no, uh, no, it, one out of five monoliths. Let's move on. <laughs> God damn. Jesus Christ. I wow, no you're brutal just, with your coin. That was, um. it's not bad, but it's just like, what the fuck? It, the most disgusting thing you put in your mouth? No, no, it's not. <laughs> I just put... I don't know. Maybe I should give it a couple more points just because it sparked joy, you know. Um, Spark joy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Okay, so after Haywood Floyd gets his uh, eardrums ruptured by um, his eardrum ruptured (laughs) by by space radio frequency. Ow, my (laughs) eardrum. He is cast off because who cares? And uh, we are sent to Act Three, uh, which is uh, wait, wait. Just before you get onto that, he was just cast off, but in the books, he's like one of he's the central character in the series. (laughs) Yeah, which which I found was interesting. But yeah, anyway. Well, there you have it. I mean, he's a bigger deal in in the book. Maybe we should read the book. Um, But yeah, in this film, he is cast off. (laughs) And uh, it's 18 months into the future. We are sent on the Jupiter mission. Our team is aboard the Discovery. We are led by Dr. Dave Bowman, played by Kier Dulay. Uh Kier Dulay was actually always the first choice in this role. I don't have anybody else to throw out there. Kier Dulay, I like <laughs> him. I like the, the fact that, uh, sp- uh, that Kubrick sort of does a bit of that thing where he's just like not always going to use like really well-known actors. I mean, obviously we know we talked about with Eyes Wide Shut. He had a lot of issues. We talked about with uh, um, with uh, The Shining. He had a lot of issues because Kubrick doesn't always like to use those big Hollywood stars. But, you know, whatever. Q Delay is great in this film. Apparently he wore a wig during filming. So that Kubrick wouldn't have to worry about his hairstyle changing during filming. And I had no fucking idea if that was even real. Uh, but apparently that's true. <laughs> I don't know if anything you've come across, Nassim, <laughs> said oh, that. No, no. Is that in the book? <laughs> yeah. That was in the book. He's just got a, got a wig on. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, and apparently it took over 12 hours in makeup for his transformation into his old man self. Uh, when he's in bed later on in the film. Uh, in an interview, though, I saw Kier Dulay, he laughed about like how much of a perfectionist that Kubrick is. And this goes back to our last uh, scene where, or sorry, our last act where uh, Haywood Floyd is talking to the Russians. There's a woman whose sweater is seen on the chair. And then later it is 
missing from the shot. A continuity error. And uh, funny enough. Oh, what the? <laughs> there, well, there is an announcement over the PA at one point during the film. And sometimes I think you kind of miss this or you have no idea what this announcement's even for. But it basically says that there's a blue cashmere sweater that's been found. <laughs> and it's like oh that's funny almost sort of like a wink at the audience like kubrick knowing that he fucked up or maybe he was trying to cover his ass Fucking i don't up know on purpose. but uh <laughs> it's kind of funny um Kier delay seemed pretty funny though he was just talking about how it was interesting to like work with someone who was such a perfectionist <laughs> his partner is dr frank He's played by Gary Lockwood. Other actors that were considered for this role were James Coburn. We had Hugh O'Brien, Rod Taylor, or George Hamilton before Lockwood got the part. These are a lot of old school actors like James Coburn. I think it was in a lot of those old Western films and stuff. Uh, Mm. But having how 9000 read lips of the two doctors while they're in the pod, apparently that was Gary Lockwood's idea. And Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were really stumped for a way to how um, to figure out how Hal would wind up, you know, figuring out the astronauts' plans to deactivate him. So that was Gary Lockwood. Thank him for that. And uh, I like that scene a lot. I've even parodied it a bit when we did oh, our yeah. membership video. <laughs> I remember, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, that leads us to, come on, he's the star of the film. How 9000, <laughs> voiced by Douglas Rain. But originally, How 9000 was going to be named Athena after the Greek goddess of wisdom and had a feminine voice and, perso- uh, and persona. Arthur C. Clarke said that How was originally meant to be a mobile robot as well. <laughs> oh, like in uh, Interstellar? Just yeah. like with a smiley face? Uh, <laughs> or Pauline's robot from yeah, before. Yeah, there we go. That's exactly what. I, that's what I wanted to hear. Come on. Uh, but uh, yeah, happy birthday, Dave. <laughs> they f- they fear that it will be really outdated in the coming decades, so they had the omnipresent red eye uh, instead. Mm. And thank God they did that. I mean, just think about like technology today. Like, of course, in the eighties and stuff, and things like you know, fucking Rocky or whatever. Like they had. Like robots running around and stuff. And I know, you know, there's actual robots that do get made and stuff and they're getting pretty sophisticated. But just think about like the technology that most people actually use, like your series or your Alexas or Alexa, all yeah. that sort of stuff. I mean, that's like that is open the pod day, bay door, Alexa. Do you have an Alexa? Yeah, Cannot I mean, find that, is, that is happening, isn't it? With, with smart yeah. homes and yeah, like you've, you've got people have. Fucking smart light bulbs. <laughs> oh my god! Just fucking pull the thing. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Again, ahead of its time. Yeah, definitely. Well, Hal's lines were originally read out on set, off camera during filming, with the original voice of Nigel Davenport, so that Kier Delay and Gary Lockwood could react to them. But Kubrick found Davenport's accent to be too distracting. He was a British man, so. He dismissed him, and the ins- and an assistant director read out the lines instead. Dulay actually said that this guy had a really thick Cockney accent, and it was even more distracting. <laughs> uh, can't do that, mate. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that, mate. 
<laughs> and later, uh, Martin Bassam was hired to re-record the lines during post-production. But when Kubrick listened to that, he didn't like that either. And then he hired eventually Douglas Rain to re-record the lines again. And that would be the iconic voice that you hear in the film as HAL 9000. Although HAL 9000 was depicted in the film as an expert chess player. Here we go. We're going to get into some more fun fan theories. Um, The actual on-set computer was a really very weak chess player uh, because you could actually play this computer. And it caused a lot of Uh. amusement for Stanley Kubrick, who himself was an expert player who would uh, routinely beat the primitive automation. And he called it a bumbling piss wit. (laughs) 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 But it's interesting, though, because the chess game between Hal and Frank in the film is based on a famous game from 1910 played by Roche and Schlag in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, it's of course, yeah. I, I know think that it's game. some like amazing game that Kubrick. <laughs> it's like this legendary chess game that Kubrick was really obsessed with. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I know it. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, though, with this, and this is where a lot of funny fan theories start to come in about Hal Nine Thousand and his uh, motivations was that Hal tells Frank that he missed it, and he tells him the moves basically, and he basically goes on to do a series of two moves. Uh, and basically tells Frank, yeah, I've beat you, mate. And uh, Frank sort of goes, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. And then the thing that's weird about it is that, like, Frank necessarily wouldn't have to have made those moves, and he actually could have prolonged the game. And some viewers have said that Hal made a mistake in his quoting of the moves as well because they were actually, mm-hmm. like, looking at the way the board was and Hal apparently said the wrong moves i don't know people getting way too into this but people have been uh theorizing though that this is actually maybe kubrick's plan all along because uh kubrick was supposed to be this master chess player he should have known his mistake he should have seen the folly but it was actually maybe how messing up on purpose testing frank's common sense and that's uh one of the things that comes up a lot because how 9000 apparently knew that he couldn't test Dave. He tried him. Apparently, there's a couple of scenes in the film where he tries to test Dave, but Dave uh, is too smart for him. But Frank is a bit dumber than Dave, isn't he? And Hal <laughs> tricks him. And apparently, uh, but it's interesting, though, because isn't it Frank who realizes that uh, Hal has a malfunction? And uh, this is where it gets kind of crazy, though, the whole Hal 9000. And he gets rid of Frank. Yeah. I don't know what you guys think about How 9000 because it goes into literally uh, murder mode. Uh, it goes straight into thriller. There's so much going on in this fucking movie. Like kill. It's got so many fucking genres going on in it because yeah. this whole thing turns into like literally Terminator, AI, uh, artificial intelligence uh, deciding to kill everyone. And uh, <laughs> he goes on a rampage. Uh, in a very, yeah, very quick way where it's very uh, chill and relaxed. But I don't know what you guys think on Hal's, um, if he was planning this all along or if, if he realized that he had an era and they wanted to shut him down and he just got kind of crazy because, you know, he actually has feelings and he didn't want them to shut him down, which is probably kind of actually what happened. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, I like that theory. <laughs> Um, I think if uh, if Frank had only um, 
poured the whiskey in the machine. Uh, <laughs> ah. <laughs> like Kurt Russell's character in the thing. And, uh, the thing, yeah. yeah maybe, maybe they could have stopped this off <laughs> before it got yeah, to just ended psychotic it. breakdown. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, so you find out that Hal knows the true mission statement and, and the two astronauts, um, Bowman and, and Frank Paul, they, they don't know. Um, they know they're going to Jupiter, but they don't know why. Yeah. I, I have a lot of problems with this because why in the fuck would you sign up to go on this mission? <laughs> if you have no idea why you're even going. Yeah. They had to have told him something. Like, yeah. There's some reason for you to go. Maybe it's just like, Oh, you're going to go explore Jupiter. I don't know. It just doesn't. I don't buy that part because it's revealed to them via a message after he shuts down and reboots basically how this message appears. And it was supposed to only show them that at the end when they arrived at their destination. <laughs> <laughs> like you're going to die here. <laughs> yeah. And how obviously withheld it from them because mm. how. I don't know. What was how going to do it? All right. So I get I did. They didn't want like how didn't want them to shut him down. And how also worried that they were going to ruin the mission. But what the fuck was Hal going to do when he got there? Like, what was <laughs> this computer expecting to do when he met the alien gods that exist on this plane in Jupiter? <laughs> well, maybe that's the point. He was just supposed to. Dude, maybe it's like Pinocchio. He was going to become a real boy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, mystery well, solved, like, ladies and gentlemen. It's like you know, humanity. They're 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 on their way to look for this possible extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah. But on the way there, they sort of created their own intelligence that is sort <laughs> of you know um, superseded their, their own in a way. Yeah. Um, and maybe yeah, I mean maybe it's kind of. Based, how sort of faced with the same existential crisis as, as <laughs> yeah. the astronauts. And, yeah. I think it's a part of the plan, you know, like how it's supposed to, you know, it challenges everyone to evolve. They've had to be better than the machine in order to get to the next bit, which is Jupiter and, you know, through the big gate and onto another dimension and whatnot. Yeah. So it all has to happen like that. At least that plot-wise, it works like that. I don't know what the fuck Hal's motivation is beyond just they've created something that's too smart. It gained, you know, uh, like awareness of one self-awareness. Self-awareness. <laughs> um, it, it gained yeah. that. Um, but the way you've said that, it almost makes it seem like this would be like what predestination or something. It's like. Yeah, it was set out bro. this way from the beginning by these god creatures, and how was a part that, of their plan? <laughs> but that that, that, that is kind of what it clearly is. what the motivation that like the monolith always happened at the right time. Yeah, and it's them right. trying to be like pushing humanity in order to find them. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, Fuck, I love the, I love this film, man. It's so silly. <laughs> <laughs> it literally yeah. is just like. Uh, humans coming to grips with the changing of technology. And I mean, good God, it's 1968. Technology, technology is yeah. out of control now. So, I mean, obviously last week's episode, I mean, fuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
it's kind of funny. I mean, like humans battling with technology, like it really is kind of the ultimate battle. But at the end of the day, you kind of see that like, you know, the man created this machine and it's like Frankenstein's monster. He can take him, he can take him down, even though, you know, Dave Mm. didn't create Hal, but Dave is smarter than Hal because humans (laughs) haven't gotten that far yet. Or maybe they have, I don't know. This motherfucker murdered like, all of his friends on the ship, so <laughs> everyone you just straight up murdered it's man that's crazy silent, crazy silent murder very efficiently done <laughs> yeah it's over it already happened <laughs> yeah filming took place from december 1965 at stage h at shepparton studios in england Woo! they also did some filming at uh mgm <laughs> british studios in borehamwood See, that's where the boar comes from in this film because those scenes that were at Borehamwood, those oh. are the boring scenes. <laughs> that's in the film. Oh, right. Yeah, that's how you know. Uh, the only scene that was not filmed in the studio was the last live action scene uh, filmed, shot for the film, which was the skull smashing sequence in which Moonwatcher wields his newfound bone, his weapon tool, and he uh, smashes it against a pile of nearby bones. I think that's one of the most amazing sequences. And then, uh, he tosses that bone up into the air. Um, they they filmed that like out in a field near the studio, so the camera could uh, shoot upward uh, with the sky as the background, avoiding cars and traffic and all that in the <laughs> in the backgrounds. But uh, yeah, that's that's an important sequence because that is a really fucking awesome match cut shot that they do, where he tosses the bone and it floats in the air, and then it cuts to the spaceship. It's fucking brilliant. A really good way yeah. to express uh the passage of time and uh entering the a new technology without even needing yeah. a new uh title card on the screen to tell you that you're in a new act yeah. <laughs> act two the next bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, next the narration bit. that they had planned as well you know i, I just think yeah show don't tell yeah definitely i mean that's what kubrick was all about with this film for sure <laughs> Yeah. Uh, delay in Lockwood. Did you guys know this? Much like Kubrick, we talked about this a little bit. Was they were both afraid of flying, and apparently they traveled to England yeah. to shoot the film by boat. <laughs> okay, fuck. Uh, part of Delay's fear of flying, though, was his fear of heights. Something he did have to overcome in the emergency airlock scene. All right, so in the emergency airlock scene, uh, he wouldn't have his helmet on because his helmet was inside the the spaceship and Hal was basically trying to screw uh Cure Delay's character over and he like wasn't going to be wearing his helmet so he had to do the scene himself where he plunged 24 feet on on a wire and uh they oh. couldn't disguise a stuntman and everything so it was just like he had to get over his fear of heights and he actually did it which is pretty badass um <laughs> They're making no, you got to do it. There was a fucking story I found as well about a stuntman that uh, was working on the film that Kubrick apparently wouldn't let him uh, put holes into his space helmet it, so that it could help him breathe. And <laughs> the guy like started blacking out like <laughs> in his fucking space helmet. And then also he wouldn't allow him to wear an extra uh, wire on his harness or whatever when he was doing some of the stunts. Uh, like the floating out in space sort of stuff and like the wire started to break or whatever like the one wire that he did have started to break and he just like 
got so angry that he apparently chased Kubrick down and Kubrick left the set. And <laughs> apparently he nah. didn't return for another few days. <laughs> this guy was going to go. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> wow. It was fucking Real tough. Really crazy <laughs> stories. That's what you get for killing stuntmen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kubrick had to uh, convince the two, uh, the two, Kier Dulay and uh, Gary Lockwood, though, to fly from New York to LA for the film's premiere, which they ended up doing. Uh, but did Kubrick go? Probably not, because he <laughs> didn't really leave England after he moved there. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like it here. <laughs> Let's get into some music, baby. I don't know how I'm going to clap along to Dun 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 Famously, you know, this film uses classical music such as Richard Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra aka Thus Spoke Zarathustra aka Thus Spake Zarathustra AKA Nature Boy Ric Flair's theme song. Woo! Yeah. Woo! <laughs> also famously used was Johann Strauss's The Blue Danube in the film as well. Uh, that mm. has been parried a lot, particularly in Deep Space Homer. That's the uh, uh, best yeah. example <laughs> of that parody being used. Yeah. Uh, Homer flying through space. I remember seeing that when it came out eating as chip. a little kid eating chips. And I remember that was the funniest the fucking thing. What a great episode. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. What are you guys' thoughts on the music in the film? Oh man, it's it's, it's epic. It's epic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, I mean it, it works really well. Like um, Ligeti's requiem is is very is terrifying. I mean, hearing yeah, yeah. it in in a cinema, it just like dude, <laughs> yes. It really sends shivers down your spine, you know? Yeah. I had that same feeling like last time I saw it on 70mm at the cinema. And it was just like, especially like some of those crazy sort of, at the beginning, some of the crazy sort of tribally sort of screaming sounds. And then at the end where it gets like, it starts building up again. It's almost like the beginning and the end have that same sort of music playing. And it's just like fucking terrifying at times. It's just weird visceral and gets under your skin a bit so <laughs> it's amazing it's one of those examples that's amazing because it's so iconic and it's so tied to this movie the classical pieces of music mm-hmm. that like when other things use it it's such a shorthand to yeah. a, a feeling a genre like uh, a thing you're playing with and it ties it back to this movie and yeah in the cinema it's really overwhelming especially with, again the version we show with the fucking 10 minute overture in the middle and the opening yeah. and the ending then you it's so encouraged to just sit and be in the music Absolutely. especially at the end like credits have rolled and <laughs> just like let it like let it sink in and then you get up and you have to walk away from it but like it's in you yeah you have to think about that shit it's not just like digestible music that's just in the background to bolster the feeling it's like a character within the movie yeah mm, it works really well Originally for the film score, Kubrick hired Alex North, who had written the score for Spartacus, and he also worked on Dr. Strangelove. But it was during post-production that Kubrick abandoned North's music. He actually completed a score. It's out there. You can actually find it uh, in certain sequences. I think people have restored it with the footage of the film. Uh, 
it's it's really funny. Kubrick just decided to use the classical pieces that they were using as temporary music in the film. And uh, apparently he didn't tell North about it. Alex North shows up to the film's premiere and he realized that none of his music was in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Why am oh, I here? <laughs> God. It's sort of like legend, man. Like he just completely ditched the whole original soundtrack. <laughs> Yeah, I heard that the music union, the music union, was pissed about that because it means I don't think he got paid for his work. Or yeah, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it wasn't in the movie. I'd like to hear it though. I haven't heard it. I I think um, I'm trying to remember who did release a. It might have been Jerry Goldsmith, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith uh, basically re- like did a performance of Alex Norse would-be uh, score, and he d- I think he did it live with the Philharmonic or whatever. And <laughs> it's just funny though because I said it's like legend. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith creates this amazing score for legend, and uh, the American version just cut it out and they just put like completely different soundtrack in um, to make it more '80s and MTV friendly. <laughs> If you want to hear that episode, that's available on patreon.com forward slash PCC podcast. $5 or more a month gets you bonus episodes like Legend, and it's only going to be on there. We're never going to release that into the wild. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, let's move on. From 19, sorry, June 1966 until March 1968, Kubrick spent most of his time working on the 205 special effects uh, shots in the film. They made numerous models ranging from the size of two feet for the satellites to 55 feet for the Discovery spacecraft. I mean, it's insane. Some of the model work they were doing and Kubrick had ordered the special effects technicians to use the process of creating all visual effects seen in the film in camera, uh, avoiding degraded picture quality from the use of blue screen and uh, traveling matte techniques. So there was a lot of like innovation and pioneering in the film. They used motion control for the precise movement of spacecrafts. They used uh, the slit scan photography for the Stargate sequence. And also they used front projection technique, particularly for the opening sequence to allow Kubrick to film it on a soundstage, but using footage from Africa in the background. This is accomplished by projecting the image in a, on a two-way mirror that's sort of angled, uh, reflecting it onto a screen made of scotch light, which is a reflective material that's used uh, to make movie screens. And this allows the actors or objects to be lit however the director wishes to light them without it inter- interfering in the background. It's a pretty complicated uh, technique that obviously they don't utilize a lot these days because of green screen and... Uh, <laughs> cgi and all that sort of stuff but you know kubrick fucking nailed it it looks amazing (laughs) it's insane uh the overall just a lot of the stuff he was doing with these models they're fucking crazy like that motion control stuff is just absolutely insane i mean just how good it looks and how well it still holds up to this day. And it's insane when you compare it Mm. to films that were made after that were inspired by like people like George Lucas and star Wars. And obviously he's gone and he's like touched up his film so many times and made it worse and has made it worse. But at the same time, uh, even he wasn't able to like create a few years later, like what? Oh God, I can't believe how good like those space shots look. 
it's insane. Like absolutely insane. So yeah, you have the giant centrifuge on the Discovery that basically the spinning wheel that produces artificial gravity. It's basically a 30-ton rotating Ferris wheel that was built for around $750,000. And it was 38 feet in diameter and 10 feet wide. And basically, we talked about this a little bit with Inception, about basically a rotating set piece. This is kind of how they did this. Uh, Scenes with the actor running or walking along with the rotation were accomplished by securing set pieces on the wheel and then rotating the, uh, the wheel with the actor, sort of having to keep his spot like he was always going to have to be in spot or else he would fall over but he basically stayed at the <laughs> bottom of the wheel while it was rotating same thing if another actor had to be stationary for instance uh what is it like here delay comes into the room like into that section of the ship and uh yeah gary lockwood's character is sitting there eating and it's rotating basically they had to mm. secure him to the set while it's moving. Tied. That must have been fucking wild. Oh, man. Anyway, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in this film. And, oh, yeah, there was a real leopard at the beginning of the film. Uh, Kubrick hid in a cage while they were shooting that scene, apparently. <laughs> of course he fucking did. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You just, like, I'll put everyone in danger. And it's, like, it's great. It's real. It's actually scary. Could that... All yeah. you're seeing is the leopard jump on a real guy in a really, like, just embarrassing monkey suit. Yeah. Like, imagine that's how you die. I mean, <laughs> there's not a lot of better ways to go out, but still. Do you know who did that that shot, though? It was uh, Dan Richard, apparently, the guy who was on heroin. And yeah. Oh, that's right. So, that's so he could have killed that leopard. Yeah. He would have torn <laughs> that leopard apart if anything bad happened. Yeah, apparently they had this animal trainer on set and uh, they were, you know, basically everyone was sort of worried about it and stuff. And Kubrick was just like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm inside of this cage <laughs> hiding while everybody's just <laughs> freaking out. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're fine. <laughs> it's amazing. We're fine. We're OK. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. The film first premiered on the 2nd of April, 1968, at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. with a 161 minute cut. And then it was shown the next day in New York. And then the following day in Los Angeles, initial reactions to the film weren't good at all. Kier DeLay says that during the New York premiere, around 250 people walked out. In LA, Rock Hudson uh, not only left early, but he was heard to mutter, what is this bullshit? (laughs) (laughs) Kubrick then decided to cut 19 minutes out of the film, making it about 142 minutes to tighten the film up. And the film was released for its initial sort of Cinerama roadshow. And then it went to a 70 millimeter and then eventually even wider for 35 millimeter. Uh, But after it was getting some negative reviews and its early screenings with people calling the film boring and just not getting it, the film found its audience. Oh my God. The stoners appear. (laughs) Stoned audiences flock to this movie. Boy, I tell you what, John Lennon claimed to have watched it Every week, David Bowie took a few drops of cannabis tincture before watching the film, and then other countless people, these crazy hippies, were dropping acid watching this film and blowing their fucking minds. According to Rolling Stone magazine, during one screening, a young man rose as if in a trance at the monolith's reappearance near the end, (laughs) ran down the theater's idol, 
shouting, It's God! It's God! <laughs> Before the theater's management could stop him, yeah. he had crashed through the screen. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Oh, and he man. just ran into the uh, Pink Floyd later show across the street. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I mean, come on. This film has an effect on people. We've had a couple of fights in our screens. After oh. Yeah, I was there. I was yeah. fucking ushering when that happened. Man. Yeah. And it was like the irony of the fucking gore coming up of 2001 while two guys are like just throwing fucking punches at each other over like a seat. Was this was this right at the end? Of, yeah, of the, so. No, oh. no, it was, um, when it it would right well, after the break. Well, there was the a couple of fights. One did happen at the end, I think. <laughs> oh, the one I was involved yeah. was in was right after the break. Overture had finished. Lights were coming up, or lights were coming down. Music was coming up, and yeah, they were just fucking yelling and fighting each other right in the middle. Who knew, man? Who knew? I mean, that Kubrick it? just brings out the worst in people. Yeah, or yeah. people just thought. Yeah. They were Ric Flair. They were channeled by Spigs <laughs> 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 yeah. Here we go. Ding, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, so stoners realized the iconic Stargate sequence could even be timed. They could time it. It was, <laughs> you know, sufficient practice to crest with the viewer's own hallucinations. Oh, oh man, wow. the ingenuity that stoners will go through to have the ultimate trip. Uh, and <laughs> hey, the ultimate trip, the studio soon caught on with this and they realized, oh, a new tagline needs to be made for this film. Ladies and gentlemen, we can get more people in the screens. So they redesigned the movie posters with the ultimate trip on the poster. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and the PCC will be doing, um, will be giving out uh, one tab of acid for every ticket. <laughs> <laughs> one per customer. One. One. <laughs> One. Make it last. It's eight hours. <laughs> so the film literally is like the ultimate slow burn. I know I was talking about this a little bit with uh, uh, the social network last week. And this film is, good God, it is like, and like I said at the top of the episode, it's sort of like you evolve every time you watch it because every time you sort of have a different experience out of it and you start to see new things and all that. And I think that's sort of what happened with this film with critics over time. They started to come around to it and there was numerous re-releases and it started to make uh, back its budget, which was in, in excess of about 10 million pounds, oh, sorry, $10 million. It was around 10 to about 12 million. And it made around $146 million making it the highest grossing film of 1968, even though some of that money was probably accumulated in years later, like 1971, they did a re-release. They were re-releasing a lot. Uh, but, you know, hey, like Phil said, laser shows were a big thing. People, you know, counterculture was big. People, you know, they don't like the drugs, but they like making money off of you taking those drugs. Hey, mm. so hey. this is uh, something Kubrick had never really experienced before up to this point, though. He had a hit film. And the film was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Kubrick actually won for Best Visual Effects, which shockingly is his only Academy Award win. What the fuck? Really? Wow. Yeah. No. One Oscar. What the fuck? And it was for Best Visual Effects, which is badass, though, because... Kubrick did the visual effects. <laughs> it's like he's responsible for leading that. So that's amazing. All right, guys, that's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, the thing about this film, though, is obviously there's a lot of interpretations about the movie. And we've kind of touched on a little bit. 
giving our little ideas about certain things and all that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's one of the most analyzed films in history, offering mif- many different interpretations for its meaning. And it doesn't help that a ton of audiences were literally zonked while watching it, even to this day. <laughs> and uh, that Kubrick himself has always been pretty much like, eh, make your own interpretation of it. And he never offers an explanation of what really happened in the in the film. And uh, he basically said in a 1968 interview with a notable magazine, you're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film. And such speculation is one indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level. But I don't want to spell out verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue uh, or else fear he's missed the point. Oh, what? (laughs) What? But he Uh, did explain it in like a random interview like years later. Well, you didn't do it for this one, and this was for Playboy magazine, and that's literally the only one that counts. Yeah. Uh, he did like years later because he was like sick of being asked and he's like look (laughs) fine but the idea was this essentially and yeah yeah i mean i mean it's a way to read it i like that it can be interpreted many different ways i'm not like confused by the ending i know what's happening and i like what's happening it's just fucking crazy what's happening the like existential i'd like the just the theory behind the whole thing Mm -hmm. Mm. Like the, 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 what do they call it? The galactic zoo hypothesis or the theory? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a good that, theory there. That, um, that, 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 that the Earth is just kind of a zoo for extraterrestrial intelligence. We're just being kept in a region of space where we're being <laughs> yeah. observed. And, uh, and I guess that's what, you know. Well, even further, the idea that Bowman, after he goes through the Stargate, he sees those uh, basically what actually kind of are the tetrahedron, like sort of crazy mm. uh, pyramid-y sort of diamond shapes. Cause everything's about shapes. Like I was saying earlier, there's a lot about, um, there's a lot about alignment. There's a lot about shapes. There's a lot about uh, sex and birth and <laughs> like there's very phallic shaped uh, ships flying around bones. They're very phallic and uh, the tools that we use, they're phallic. Um, but then going into holes. <laughs> yeah. And then literally as he goes through the Stargate, I mean, his ship sort of turns into a spermazoa and it goes through and there's a lot of like, embryo looking things it's very much just all about rebirth and stuff but when Mm -hmm. he appears in this uh room that is basically like this baroque sort of like french very as kubrick as possible sort of room he's there and there's a theory that he is basically being watched by the extraterrestrials and he ages and he has no idea like he's basically a zoo animal for them and yeah. they are watching him as he just ages in this room and as he gets old the monolith appears again and he sees it and he touches out for it and he's sort of like and then he becomes <laughs> little embryo baby star baby super baby sent, sent into uh space again and uh back to earth where the film ends and you're i don't know i mean like what's what's your take on that like what what happens at the end is it just the new it's a new way it's 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 literally uh i don't know like we can go crazy thinking about ancient aliens sort of like the <laughs> and what were they called the uh the anunnaki sort of thing about like 
I mean, because that's what this really feels like, the sort of thing where they they triggered evolution. I mean, that's yeah, sort of like yeah. a yeah. crazy theory and that's sort of like way the Prometheus this, thing. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's why I wanted to ask Natif because like you've, you've read the book. So the next mm-hmm. Odyssey, what happened? He, they oh, have to answer yeah. what happened, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is a, they did make a film sequel. To yeah. It 2010. Well. Um, yeah. But I'm not, I'm not going to watch it. No. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I think, I think if you like the mystery uh, or like if you like 2001 where that leaves you and you're just satisfied there then mm-hmm. it's fine just just end it just don't don't, don't read on <laughs> cool. don't do cool. that um, yeah but if i mean if you are curious it it does continue the story and uh, it is like the story becomes more character focused and, mm-hmm. and, okay um, and it does kind of lay it out for you like what what is happening and it kind of dispels some of the mystery, which I don't particularly like. Like I was happy with the sort of philosophical, you know, meanderings that, mm. <laughs> that 2001 yeah. leaves you with. Um, yeah. 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 It, it, yeah. So David Bowman, he, do you want me to like spoil it? Or that? I would like to know. That's why, but you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, he basically transcends, his human form and like becomes pure energy that is able to sort of zoom through space and yeah. So he becomes like Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. Yeah. He's able to like (laughs) go down to like the smallest, smallest levels of of, of atoms and he goes into atomic level. Yeah. He goes into the cloud tops of Jupiter and he sees that there's life brewing in the clouds of Jupiter and, and then he goes to he goes and sort of hijacks his his uh, ex wife's TV and sort of <laughs> <laughs> like a pest. Like guy. Yeah, it gets really weird. <laughs> so, oh man, that's yeah, like yeah. what? Yeah, that's interesting. So I I thought it would be like um, I wanted the literal sequel. I want like a Godzilla type thing where like a super massive baby come to Earth and devour everyone. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the just like ends. dumps through the yeah. city in a diaper, <laughs> <laughs> like like honey, I blew up the baby. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I, was there like another film where that happens? Sort of where there's just this big, crazy, scary baby, like giant baby. Or am I thinking of like Rugrats or something? Like it's a very trippy episode about like this huge baby that's just stomping everything, <laughs> killing. <laughs> Rugrats is so trippy, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow, I th- I I've never thought we'd jump to like that yeah. in 2001. That was impressive. I think the acid's starting to wear off, <laughs> <laughs> or kick in. Yeah, either one, man. <laughs> I yeah, I've read a little bit about 2010, but I've not really gone too hard in, and I've always wanted to see the film because the stars were a shider who I fucking love. Oh. Um, and uh, don't get me talking about Jaws again, baby. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Keir DeLay actually reprises his role as Bowman. But I don't know how hardcore he is in this film. If in 2010 they're going the way the books go or if he's uh, or if it's just like pretty chill and, and laughs. Yeah, he, but, um, he doesn't say much. <laughs> just the God man who appears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's sort of I've, I've read that a little bit when I was looking into some people's theories that like, yeah, this is literally you as a human becoming 
just a spiritual force that's how, like literally those uh diamond shaped sort of things could either be crafts or they are the aliens themselves leading him to that mm-hmm. jupiter starscape sort of thing that was going on well they're, they're um, one and so, one in the same is what i thought like they have become yeah they become a spirit energy like yeah. like it's mm-hmm. just it's just straight they're they are so fucking beyond powerful and to know everything that they are literally just energy <laughs> and sure. hey like you can think this film and some of those uh those you know ideas that are expanded upon like in the books and all that sort of stuff for creating like things like the eternals and stuff in marvel comics because i'm for pretty sure, sure yeah. they were directly influenced by and they created these sort of things uh using i think some of you even the same terminology that was you know put inside the books and all that sort of stuff um to all these things come out at the same time like it's all like all those marvel characters are born from the cosmic age it's the astronauts are going up and 2001 is coming out and so all their heroes are born in science fiction rather than science fantasy they have they have semi-realistic origin whether it's to do with at least chemical theory, like it's radiation or it's like, yeah, with the eternal, it's just a race of super beings living on the moon. So like you can see it all sort of <laughs> interconnected, these, these characters, these stories. It's quite wonderful. Yeah. Well, Jesus Christ, we've been going at it for a long time. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've probably pissed off some people who might have decided to I hope this. so. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I hope <laughs> we pissed them off. If, if you're that serious about <laughs> films, then I don't know. You need to take yourself. Maybe. No, they didn't even you. mention that Hal was the play on IBM. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, there's so much time. to talk about. There is yeah, so yeah. much to talk about. That's why I kind of prefaced it at the beginning. Was like, sort of like. You're probably not going to like this because there's yeah. it's I you could have a whole fucking series. You could have a whole podcast on how fucking intricate like all this is. And I tried to build as much of a story as I could. I don't know if I did a good job, but it's OK. I had fun with you guys talking about 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> it is playing at the Prince Charles Cinema. It's weird. I got to remember to do this from now on uh, from Friday, the yeah. 16th of October. It's playing that that is our opening night sort of officially. And uh it is sold out, unfortunately, but it's playing throughout October all the way towards, I think, the 28th of October. It's it's playing a lot, and it's going to be on 70 millimeter from the unrestored version that Christopher Nolan helped uh, bring to the world because uh, he likes that film a lot, and he wanted to no restore shit. it from <laughs> the original negative, and that's what they did, and it looks great. It looks amazing on our uh, cinema screen. It sounds amazing. 70 millimeter is really a sight to see. Uh, I'm glad that at the Prince Charles Cinema, we are still offering that because there's not many places in London that do it. Um, so if you want to blow your mind, we're not really giving out acid. That'd be amazing if we were. But, uh, you know, we can't do that. I mean, because of COVID. No, because also that's <laughs> illegal. <laughs> uh, but yeah, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, don't. Yeah, maybe do it beforehand. It. Yeah, just come see it. We're not going to ask questions. Just uh, be in the right frame of mind, or else no uh, be nice to all of our staff members and people oh. and stuff. Don't have these crazy trips. But anyway, no fighting. I think. Oh, I'm coming down, guys. I don't know. Uh, I just realized it. Um, we're not in space. <laughs> what, you guys? We're in a Prius. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 
and uh How quiet i think this is an uber <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> how long have we been in this uber out of my car now out of my car now i have the right I guess, uh, to tell so you we when have to, to go get out quickly. of my car uh nasif thanks for joining us it's amazing to finally have you on the podcast yeah, to talk thank, about thank this you. cosmic film yeah, <laughs> and, uh, thank you for having me yeah uh you're going back to the cinema very soon phil's going back very soon so I mean, we obviously know that's what you guys are doing very soon. But Nasif, uh, do you have anything going on that you kind of do outside the cinema that you would want the listeners to know about? And if there's anything that they could see of that example or <laughs> whatever, uh, you can plug it if you like. If not, it's okay. Um, but yeah. I don't, I don't have anything, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm really sorry. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm not on, you know. I'm not on social media or anything. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I don't know. Come. Well, no, don't come. See me at the pictures. Yeah, don't leave me alone. Yeah. That's sort of uh, Phil's line. So, Phil, with oh, you, right. I mean, you're. You are, uh-huh. You're very good at so basically saying, "Come see me at the Prince Charles Cinema" because that's I'm far away, sad in real life. Or, uh, oh fuck yeah, I used but, to say that. Now yeah. I don't want anyone coming fucking near me. Yeah. <laughs> don't come near. Me. <laughs> don't come fucking like six feet, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, Phil, uh, you had a little bit of uh, responses, you know, via your Twitter handle <laughs> request. Yeah, I'm surprised week. it got any replies, and there yeah. were some actually good ideas, and all of them were taken. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Phil of the Future was a good one from Harry. Um, exactly, but like, what the fucking odds that people would have that? There's more Phil's out there with an F. Yeah. Whoa. That's what Space Odyssey should be about. Let's keep working on it. We had Phil of the Future. I forgot to write this bit down. Uh, who else sent in something? We had... Uh, J- Jamie would like, Jamie fill me up. Fill me up. Was that taken? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And Malcolm, our boy Malcolm, this is a little bit of uh, user feedback. Do I have time to put that in? I don't know. But anyway, Malcolm said I've yet to see this, uh, but have recently deleted Facebook from my phone, so perhaps I should watch it. He was talking about the social network. And he actually listened to the entire episode because this was all the way towards the end of the episode, so it was nice to hear from Malcolm. It's been a long time. Why doesn't Phil change his Twitter name to Phil... Um. (laughs) Phil. Phil. How did you try? Did you try to do a fill with the big underscore M? I didn't try that one because I thought okay. that would be annoying. But I'll try. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know how to put that beyond like at film, and I'm like, that's definitely taken. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's like capitalized or something. I'll try that one properly. There was another one I think Ari had, which was Springfield or something like that. Springfield. Oh, it, yeah, yeah it like a Simpson joke. I'll try yeah. again. Maybe I can get away with like putting a number in it. Yeah. Well, no, um, you don't want to go down that route because then people think you're a bot, you know? I mean, you've got that, dude. Tall for all. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 all right, Phil, where can people find you now? Oh, you fuck now, right now. You haven't your Twitter name yet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, at Faraway Third on Twitter and in real life, um, uh, and I guess I'll see everyone very soon. Yeah, great. Well, you can find me at Tall for All, T A L L, the number four. 
ALL <laughs> on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, and as always, you can find the podcast at the PCC Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can pop us an email at podcast.princecharlescinema.com. Let us know if you enjoyed this episode. As always, support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash the PCC Podcast. Help us keep doing what we like doing. We got some fun stuff going on very, very soon. Anyway. Uh, we love you guys. Thanks so much. Uh, Jesus Christ, this episode. Uh, <laughs> Get me out of my goddamn car! Now! The Uber driver is really yelling at us now, so I think we should probably get out. Uh,